Spirit and life are they, words thou didst speak. I hasten to obey, but I am weak. So we need the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. My prayer this morning is that you will hear God's message this morning, not mine. The Selective Service Committee made a recommendation that we preach some messages. Uh, They specified nonconformity, and that got my mind thinking. And so I started preaching or preparing in my mind a message on separation. And it turned into two messages. So the title of the message this morning is Separated unto God, part two. We looked at that two weeks ago a little bit. And I'd like to, there's some people here, a fair number of people here that weren't here two weeks ago. So I want to give you just a little bit of, of uh, background, because I think the background is important to what I'm sharing today. God created humanity originally to have fellowship with Him. He created everything to be good. And the relationship between God and man had no separation. But because of sin, man separated himself to God. So the subject of separation didn't actually begin with separation from the world. It began with us being separated from God. To the world. And salvation is a journey back to Eden to fellowship and communion with God. So the very nature of salvation is that we'll be separated from the world back to God. And the reason for that is because that there's this cosmic divide between God and His kingdom and Satan and His kingdom. There's two kingdoms, but they're more than just a concept. We often talk about the two-kingdom concept. But it's more than just a concept. Those two kingdoms are a reality. They're a spiritual reality. And I want to come back to that here in just a bit. But in this cosmic divide, where is humanity? I want to give you a quote from the last message. Understanding our place in this cosmic divide is critical to our understanding of New Testament theology, our interaction with the kingdoms of this world, and and the understanding of the church's purpose in the world. So I brought up three things in that. Separation in New Testament theology, separation in relation to government, and separation in the purpose of the church. And I looked at at the first one of those uh, two weeks ago. And the last two or the subject this morning. But the text passage is in John chapter 17. So you can turn there if you would like. My Bible is King James and my printed out verses are in New King James. So if you see a little bit of variation there, that's what the difference is. But I'm going to read this from the New King James. John chapter 17, beginning at verse 15 and reading to 17. 
I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So truth, by its very nature, divides because it separates from that which is false. And Jesus is saying here that we'll be sanctified by the truth. And that, that word sanctification, it does not just mean being cleaned up from sin. Because Jesus says of Himself, He says that He was sanctified and sent into the world by the Father. And we know that Jesus did not have sin. And so what it, what it means in that sense is that it was set apart for a specific purpose. So sanctification carries that message. It does also mean uh, cleansing. But primarily it means being separated for a purpose. So we're being separated, sanctified by the truth for a specific purpose. And the, what, I tried to, what I tried to express in, our, in my last message about the idea of New Testament theology is that this, this thing of separation, because we embrace the Word of God as truth, and that that Word of God is going to divide us from what is false, that, that the Word of God is going to be permeated with this issue of separation. So we need to look at the Word of God and, and understand the Word of God through the idea of separation. This is going to be part of our mindset as we think about life, as we think about um, understanding the Word of God. And we're going to have to understand, to understand the Word of God, we're going to have to see the Word of God from God's perspective. It's spirit and life are they, Words thou didst speak. He spoke a spiritual word to us. It was a message that he wanted to give us from his spirit. Those words were spiritual. And as we see life, the more we see the word from his perspective, the better we can understand what the message that God has for us. And then, like the heroes of old, we'll walk by faith, not by sight. And the verse about walking by faith and not by sight comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's where, where Paul writes to the, Corinthians, to the Corinthians, for we walk by faith, not by sight. So our mindset is, is ordered by faith, understanding that we are separate from the world, separated by the truth of God. And our lives will be ordered by the spiritual realities that God has revealed, whether they've come to pass or not, whether we can see them or not. And we can't see these two kingdoms, but they're a spiritual reality. And so our lives are ordered according to that spiritual reality. So where is humanity in those two kingdoms? Colossians 1.13 says, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. See, there's two kingdoms and two positions in that verse. So we see the power of darkness, those who are under the power of darkness. He was, uh, he's saying that you Colossians, and, and Paul was saying about himself, he said, we uh, have been removed from that power of darkness. 
And we've been translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. And I just love that word translated there because that's the same word that it used for, uses for Enoch in Hebrews chapter 11 where it says God translated him. It's the same Greek word used there. So it's Enoch was taken from this life into another life. And that's what it's saying here. It's saying that we're taken from the power of darkness and we're translated into another kingdom. We're talking about separation. So this verse is laying out that becoming a Christian is a separation from where we were and a new place where we are in the kingdom of His dear Son. When Pilate questioned Jesus about being a king, what was Jesus' response to that? As it says here in, in Colossians, it says the kingdom of His dear Son. It's talking about Jesus. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. So just as Jesus and His kingdom are not of this world, so those who follow Jesus are also distinctly separate, not of this world. In verse 16 of the passage I just read, from John 17, it says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So we're distinctly separate from world governments, just as Jesus and His kingdom were. We reside in the world but both our citizenship and our allegiance are with another kingdom. I think it's important that we understand that our citizenship is somewhere else. Very important that we understand that. Very important that we understand where our allegiance is. Philippians 3.20 For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you would say our conversation is the way we talk. But that's not what that word means. The Greek word there means our citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. The Christian Pledge of Allegiance. There's others you could pick. There were some other ones that I looked at. Matthew 12.30 And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Where have you pledged your allegiance? Have you pledged your allegiance to God? To the kingdom of Jesus Christ? What's left over after all of thy heart and all of thy soul and all of thy mind and all of thy strength? What do you have left over to give to something else? I also thought about Paul where he said, talked about all the things that he'd accomplished in the flesh as a young man. And he said, I, I do count them but don't, that I might win Christ. Is that your perspective about your allegiance to your kingdom? Like Pilate, was our world governments are operated by people who are of this world. Their focus is on earthly citizenship. 
and allegiance to their government, to the success of their country. And so we are distinctly separate as Christians. So are the world governments just an evil institution that we fight against and have nothing to do with? No. World government has a purpose in the sovereign plan of God. And God is directly involved in the happenings in world governments. But I'd like to look at four things. First of all, I'd like to look at the twofold plan of God. And I, um, as I go over these four things, I'll tell you as I get to each new one, and I want to give you a, a very concise summary first. And then I'm going to talk about some scriptures and things that align with that. The twofold plan of God. It is not God's goal to fix the present world. It is God's goal to fix the hearts of men so that they can be part of an eternal new world. Second Peter chapter 3 beginning at verse 12, says, "...looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the earth and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise..." You see, we're, we're talking about a faith issue here. His promise about what's going to happen in the future. "...nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells." There's going to be a fixed heaven and earth. This world is marred by sin. And God is planning to, to remove it and create a new heaven and a new earth that will be governed by righteousness. So the governments in place today are not in place to restore righteousness. They're not in place to fix the problems that the world has. Because that's not God's plan for the present world. His plan is to restore righteousness by removing the world marred by sin. So why doesn't God go ahead and destroy the world? We're talking about a twofold plan of God, right? So He has a plan for this present world. 2 Peter 3 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Uh, what I wanted to point, what I didn't think to point out there was that this is just a few verses before those verses in Second Peter where I said, we, we, according to His promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth. This is just a couple verses before that. It says, "...the Lord is not slack concerning His promises, some men count slackness, but is longsuffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." And so God has a plan for humanity. A restoration plan for humanity. That they would come to repentance. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 3, it says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And it's interesting to me that those verses are in the context of praying for our government. And praying for the conditions that we have as a result of their governing, um, governing work in the countries in which we live. The will and desire of God is that humanity would be saved from the imminent destruction 
of the world and be able to experience Eden restored completely, new heavens and a new earth. And so God has a plan for, the, for this world and He's got a plan for a new world. Second thing I want to look at is the purpose of world government. And the summary is, to, the purpose of world government is to suppress evil and bring about the events leading up to the end of this world. So it isn't God's plan to restore righteousness through world government. Then it isn't God's plan to make America great again. And the question that came to my mind was, in the eyes of God, was America ever great? You see, I have a book sitting on my desk that Brother Joe loaned to me and I haven't read it yet, but it says, the title of it is, In God We Don't Trust. Because you look back through the history of America, it's not all according to what God would design and God would ask and how we understand God's Word to teach that we should live. First Timothy 2, 2. For kings, this is talking about prayer, and this is the, the verses before um, the one about God's will for uh, that all will be saved and come to repentance. First uh, Timothy 2, 2. For kings, we're to pray for kings and all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And so, there's something that we're to pray about for the role of government. So they're providing a place for us and we're to pray that they will use that authority for a purpose that will enable us to live a godly life. And then Romans 13, verses 1-7, through 7, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's minister attending continually on this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So a couple things that I want to look at in this passage specifically. The first one is that God, is, it's in verse 1, that God is in charge of who rules in our land. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. And you can go back through the Scriptures and you can see time and time again that God says, I set this man up and I took him down. And I set this man up and I took him down. And he fulfilled my purpose. The second one is, he was my servant. He is God's servant. That man is God's appointed servant for his purpose. You'll notice in verse 4 of the passage I read, he is God's minister. Um, 
And then, actually it says that twice in verse 4, and then again in verse 6. They are God's ministers. The minister of God to do what God wants them to do. To fulfill their purpose. Fulfill the government purpose. But He's God's servant. Not my servant. He's God's servant. And so He's doing what God wants Him to do. And I make that distinction because we often think about what we, we want the government to do. But that's not the point. God has a purpose that He's working out through world government. And it's God's purpose and He is God's servant. And He's fulfilling that, that purpose. I do want us to notice in verse 4 that the purpose that God has in mind is a purpose that is good for us. For He is God's minister to you for good. And then what is the government to do? In verse 3, He's to be a terror to evil works. But I want you to notice what the force behind that is. It's the sword. So He is suppressing evil through the sword, through the force of the sword. But I also want to notice in this passage how distinct the second and third person approach is to, this, to these verses. It's written to Christians. This, this, this book is written to Christians. And when it talks about the government, it uses third person pronouns like he and they. But when it's addressing the Christians, it says you, second person. So the government is distinctly separate from the church. And it needs to stay that way. Because there's so much damage been done when the church and the state become one. So what's the purpose of the church? To be an embassy for a country of love and peace in a world of violence and fear. Brian in his opening devotional looked at the Beatitudes and I noticed blessed are the peacemakers. Are we peacemakers? Are we peacemakers among ourselves? I don't think we have to look too far to see areas where Conservative people haven't been peacemakers among themselves. And that should be a challenge to us. That we not be the people who are not peacemakers. Because people are looking for a place of peace. Looking for a place of love. And we're to be an embassy for a country of love and peace. We, according to His promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. We're to look for by faith, not by sight. So let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse 7 to the end of the chapter. 
2 Corinthians 5, verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. For we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have something to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then were all dead. And that he died for all, that they which and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though Christ did beseech you by us. We pray you, in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him." There's a lot in these verses. But I thought it was very interesting that, that Paul brought up the issue of walking by faith and not by sight and then addressed the call for us to be ambassadors for the kingdom of, of Christ. I'd like to look at a couple of things. In verse 11, it says, "...knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men." So we know what's going to happen to this present world. We know what's coming. We know there's a coming judgment that's going to happen to the world. And not just coming to the world. It's going to be coming for eternity for those who don't know God. But what compels us? What is the force that drives us? That's in verse 14. For the love, and it says constraineth in the King James, the New King James says compels. For the love of Christ compels us. The force operating in our lives is the love of Christ. And you see how that's so different from the force that's operating in world government? Force operating in world government is the sword. And we're operating by love. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, love is more powerful than the sword. Then verses 17 through 19. I'm going to read those again, the New King James. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now that's regeneration. That's a new world in Christ. That's separation. 
Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. And so the world was separate from God. And He sent Jesus so that we could be reconciled to Him, so that we could come into relationship with Him. not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The word. The message of reconciliation. It said in our Sunday school lesson that we were to, uh, that the disciples were to go and speak all the words of life to the people. These are the words of life, and that has been committed to us, the church. The word of reconciliation. Now then, because of that, because that's been committed to us, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We're pleading with people to be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors. That is the purpose of the church. To take the word of reconciliation to a lost and dying world, to a world that's separated from God. But there's more. And it's in verse 21. And I don't want us to miss this point. We often get hung up on the first part of that verse and say, what does it mean You know that, that uh, He became sin for us who knew no sin? But I'm not even going to look at that really. I'm going to look at the last part of that verse that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That there could be a work of righteousness that could happen in our lives, in the lives of those who come to Christ. You see, a reconciliation to God is not just getting back together with God. It's taking on His righteousness. And the purpose of the church, the Great Commission... We, we, we think about the Great Commission. I know I, I think about the Great Commission. I think about going. But there's something else in there too. And it's about teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. The Great Commission is about discipleship. It's about discipling people towards righteousness. And the church becoming and growing in righteousness. That's our goal. And then I'm going to, the fourth thing is finding our role in this twofold plan. So I talked about the church. This is just a little bit different slant. And this has more to do with our mindset and our thinking in relation to the world and government. And it's kind of a summary of, of the last two points. We must clearly see both aspects of God's twofold plan and recognize that our purpose is distinctly separate from the world and its government. You see, the Jews tried to, tried to trap Jesus with this whole issue. And you're familiar with the Scripture. But Rome was the ruling government of the time. And their rule contrasted sharply with the Jewish religious viewpoint. And so the, um, the Jewish leaders came to Jesus and they thought that this was either going to 
get, put him in disfavor with the Roman government or it was going to get him in disfavor with the people who followed him. So they thought they had a, a trap neatly set. And they asked him saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. So they baited the trap. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why tempt ye me? Shew me a penny. Whose image and subscription hath it? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are be God's. So Jesus understood something that these men missed. And he avoided the trap because of it. He understood that the Romans were bringing about a purpose in God's plan that was paving the road, literally, for the Gospel to be spread. So Rome had a part to play in God's plan. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And John Swartz, Brother John, uh, did a beautiful job of laying out our responsibilities to civic authority this past week. And he used the pray, pay, and obey rhyme and looked at that. But I'm going to pull just a few things from what I talked about earlier. We honor and obey because He is placed in His position by God. We pay because He is fulfilling a piece of God's plan. And we pray because He holds a position that affects the lives of many. But render to God the things that are God's. Our life is no longer ours. It's been bought with a price. Our, lead, our citizenship and our allegiance is with His kingdom. We are the ones who get the opportunity to take part in His eternal plan. The temporary part is in His power. He'll take care of it. Jesus said in the Great Commission, He said, All power is given unto Me in heaven and earth. And then He gave a commission to the disciples. And in Acts 1, chapter 8, He told them how they were going to feel that, fulfill that. He said, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto Me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now I switch back to Matthew. Sorry. Switch back to Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And so, Jesus has a purpose for world government. And He is taking care of that. But He has commissioned us, the church, to fulfill a plan. And He has made a way that we can receive power to fulfill that plan. And that should be the focus of our lives. So let's not get caught in the trap that the scribes and Pharisees set for Jesus and somehow think that through political means 
we can rectify the world. When God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So may God bless you. Shall we have us all?